Let's stand as we prepare to read God's Word together from Exodus 33. We find ourselves in the book of Exodus towards the end of this portion of the story where God has delivered His people Israel from slavery in Egypt. He's given them the Ten Commandments and as well the Book of the Covenant, which is detailed specific laws of application for their lives. And now we've recently come through the Golden Calf episode, which we'll talk about in just a minute. And God is telling His people through His servant Moses now in Exodus chapter 33, verse 1, this. Yahweh said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For Yahweh had said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people, for if a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments, that I may know what to do with you. Therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up, and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and Yahweh would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship each at his tent door. Thus Yahweh used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Moses said to Yahweh, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor or grace in my sight. Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider too that this nation is your people. And he, God, said, My presence, or my face, will go with you, and I will give you rest. And then Moses says to God, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us, so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of this earth? And Yahweh said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, Please, show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you. And I will proclaim before you my name, Yahweh. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And Yahweh said, Behold, there's a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my palm or hand until I have passed by. 
Then I will take away my palm or hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands firm forever. Amen? Amen. You may be seated. So those of you that are new can already tell that I have a spunky four-year-old who has to be possibly chased around the congregation before children's church is dismissed, and we'll take care of those issues later. But for now, I want to tell you a quick story about her while she's not in the room. Susanna is four, and she's a little too young still for kindergarten, but really too restless to stay at home all day. But preschool options didn't work out this year for us, and so she's going through this needy phase where, as they say in Star Trek, she's a Klingon. She clings primarily to mommy. Anytime that Shannon is in even the next room over and Susanna hears footsteps, she says, Mommy, are you still there? She could leave for 30 seconds to another room or go upstairs for just a minute. And Susanna says, Mommy, where are you? Susanna's favorite Bible verse, I think, right now is Exodus 33, verse 14 and 15. If your presence will not go with me, do not bring me up from here. A sign of maturity for our four-year-old is that she's going to learn to be okay without mommy, to be okay to face the world alone one day. A sign of maturity for Christians, as it was for Moses, the man of God, is that we grow to understand that we don't have to cry out, Father, are you still here? Father, you're here, right? No, we can say, Abba, Father, you're always before me and behind me. You're always with me. Already and forever. And we can cry in confidence to God, send me wherever you will, because I know that you will be with me. Like Isaiah said, here I am, send me. Why? Because you are with me. Are you the four-year-old version of a Christian today? Afraid? Anxious? Unaware of God's presence? You might feel like you're not even afraid or anxious, but are you even aware that God has promised to be with you always? Or are you growing in confidence as a maturing believer in this indispensable, ever-increasing glory of God's Spirit in our lives and in our work? Which one is you? Let's jump into the text of Exodus 33 to discover more of that indispensable, ever-increasing glory of God's Spirit with us. So after the Israelites received the Ten Commandments and as Moses has just even still been receiving more laws up on the mountain, Mount Sinai, the people went crazy in chapter 32, and they made this idol a golden calf, and they began worshiping it and singing and dancing and stomping and hooting and hollering, and God strikes down in that chapter 3,000 men in Israel and then puts a plague upon the people. And that's where we pick up in the story today where the Lord says to Moses, okay, go ahead and depart and go into the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey, the land of Canaan. Let me sum up what this section means by comparing it to a family. A family who's about to move from utter poverty, maybe living in the slums in India or the ghetto in America, and they're about to move into whatever your dream life might be, you know, the land of milk and honey, the French Riviera, Hawaii, wherever that might be. And as they're packing the boxes, the wife discovers a letter. I'm sorry, the husband discovers a letter that his wife has written to another man discovers that she's been cheating on him. And then he discovers that his his children are acting like little criminals. They're getting in trouble at school, even with the police. And so, brokenhearted, this good and faithful husband says, okay, you guys go ahead. Move to the new home without me. 
I'll pay for the rental truck still, for the move. I'll, I'll pay for rent once you get there. But I can't bear to live in this relationship of broken trust with a broken heart. Just go ahead, because I've lost what's most important to me, our relationship. You see, the, the thing that the Israelites realize when God says, go ahead, without me, they begin mourning, taking off their jewelry, their ornaments. They, at least on the surface, seem to get it for this moment that this is a major problem. We cannot go without God. God could give us all the blessings of the world, the milk, the honey, defeating our enemies, all the riches we could ever need to take care of us. But if God is not there, then what do we have? Already you begin to see a picture of the gospel that the gospel is God with us. You could say God is the gospel. What is good, all the blessings, all the, the blessings of life if God isn't at the center of them? If you have God, you have everything. Everything else is just details. If you don't have God, you really have nothing. What is the Christian life if it's not living in fellowship with the living God? 2 Peter chapter 3 says, this is the reason Christ died, to bring us to God. Is he present in your life? Is your life lived before the face of God? Coram Deo, as the Latin says. Are, are you walking in the spirit, as the Bible says? Every step you take, every job you do, every thought you have, realizing that God is with you, God is for you, God is working on your behalf. As we move to the next section of verses 7 through 11, we see that Moses took a tent and pitched it outside the camp. Now, this would be called life without the Spirit of God. This is what the people are experiencing now is God's presence is being removed from them because the dream was and the plan was to have the tabernacle, a tent, a portable temple built right there in the center of the camp with all 12 tribes of Israel camping around the tent where they would meet with God, where the priest would do his work, sacrifices made, prayers lifted up, and God would be there with his people and speak to them. But now he says, okay, chapter 32, you chose an alternate way to worship me, this golden calf. Now I will choose an alternate way to meet with you. Instead of building the tabernacle now, you, Moses, can go with your own personal tent and set it up and I will speak directly to you. And the people will be watching from a distance. They won't have that kind of fellowship. Far off, it says. The tent was far off. That's a very different location than right in the center of the people's lives, is it not? Yahweh says, now you can worship me as spectators. That was a problem. Some of us, that's what we are. We're just spectators in worship. We don't sense the problem with that. But the people sense the problem with that, and so did Moses. He said, we need to all be participants. All of us gathering before the face of God, hearing his voice. It's like a child under discipline who sees his big brother going into the ice cream store, but he knows that what he's done has gotten him in trouble, and he just has to watch from a distance. That's a problem for that child. Would have been a problem for you back in the days of Moses if you were one of the Israelites watching from your tent as Moses went into that special meeting place and you saw the glory cloud come down. Would that have been a problem for you or would you have just said, well, good for Moses. If he likes talking to God, you know, it sounds a little weird if you ask me, but hey, if he wants to be religious, go right ahead. I'll just stand right over here and keep living a normal life with real things. Or would you have been 
eager, longing to stand in the sandals of Moses and see that cloud come down right before you and hear the very voice of God. And when you came out, like we'll see later, his face was glowing, radiant with the presence of God reflecting from him. Would you have been like Joshua, this young assistant who would later be the general of the army of Israel, waiting outside the tent, even when Moses left, Joshua remains there. He doesn't want to leave this tangible presence of God. Anyone here been single and longed to be married? Anyone here married and remember what it was like when you first started dating and and you couldn't stay with each other? Remember that, Shannon? When we'd say, I wish we could just linger here and stay here, but we have to leave. We have to go to our separate places until we marry. Does anybody ever want to just linger in God's presence? Do you just long to be connected with him like you would another person? Anyone here want that kind of closeness and familiarity with God? We have that promise. Let's move to the next part of the story, verses 12 and following. There's a dialogue between Yahweh and Moses. Moses asks, okay, God, you told me to lead the people, but here's a question. Who will you send with us? Okay, now we're not sure exactly what he's asking here. He's probably asking either Um, who's this angel you've talked about? If you're not going to go, you said I'm sending an angel. You haven't even said it's the angel of the Lord, which we've seen elsewhere in Exodus. You're just sending an angel. Who is this? Or maybe he's saying something like, who's going to go with me of the people of Israel? You've killed some of them. The rest of them, who knows what they're going to be like tomorrow. And you've already said you're about ready to snap. And you you said they're so stiff-necked, we're not even sure if they're going to follow me if I go. We we learn later they're, they're not very ready to follow him when he goes into the promised land. And so what about this... Who are you going to send with me? Is it just me? Is it just me and a handful? I think ultimately what he's asking is, God, are you going to go with us or are you not? I mean, what's the point? If you don't go with us, who's going with us? Who is it that really matters but you, God? God says to Moses in verse 14, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Literally, my face will go with you. I'm not going to turn my back on you, Moses. I will give you rest in this promised land. Moses, you have nothing to worry about. I know you, he says. I love you. I'm with you. The rest of the people, the Israelites, I'd rather not talk about them anymore. God doesn't mention the people anymore in this section. It reminds me of politicians or pastors who cheat on their wives and then they hold a press conference with all the cameras, with all the fanfare, and and they want to drag their poor wife up there to stand by her man, to support him. You know, what a shame that she has to do that in so many cases. God's basically saying, look, my people cheated on me. Am I going to stand up here on a stage before the world and just be their prop, pretending that everything's okay? I will not go with them, he says. I'm not going to the promised land with them. They're on their own. Let their golden God help them. That's what he's saying. Verse, uh, chapter 32, verse 7, God says to Moses at the golden calf uh, disaster, Go down, Moses, and see your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt. He doesn't say, these are my people whom I delivered. He says, they're your people, Moses. Sounds a lot like me and my wife when you know, one of our daughters makes a mess in the house. They're my daughters all of a sudden. Your daughters left a big mess here. Who do you think they take after? When they're all sweet and happy, oh, my sweet little daughter, my sweet little girl. You know, We claim them then. God is not wanting to claim his people now before Moses in this sense, 
But Moses repeatedly brings the conversation back to the people of Israel. What about them? You keep saying you know me. What about them? What about your people? Aren't they your people too? You see how he keeps playing the role of mediator? Now, I would say that God isn't caught off guard with this and that God still had a plan for the people and that really Moses is, in some sense, playing out the role of God. He's doing what God is about to do anyway. He's doing what God's character is to forgive, to love, to restore his people. It's not as if God didn't know that, okay, I am going to end up going with my people in the promised land. But what he's saying is, this really breaks my heart and my law. And there's a, a time for discipline. I'm turning away from you. You're on your own now. See how that feels. See what that's like. How's that working out for you? Moses, the mediator, though, sees God turning back to the people to show grace to a people who turned their backs on him. And so God comes back to the people and relents from his anger because he loves Moses, the mediator, because he knows Moses, because Moses has found favor or grace in the Lord's eyes. Now, that phrase is only used of two people in the Bible in the Old Testament, Noah, who built the ark and found favor in the Lord's eyes, and Moses here. The good news of this Exodus 32 golden calf incident is that, here's the good news for the church, It cannot be directly applied to us in the church. We can't say, well, if we worship idols, God will strike us down with a plague. How many idols have you worshipped in your life? How many idols do I have in my heart even now? And here I am still alive under the grace of God. The good news is that Exodus 33 shouldn't be applied directly to the church today. Um, God, are you here or are you not? Are you going to go with us or not? I'm so worried. I'm so anxious. I'm afraid, God, does he love me or loves me not? That's not our application from this passage today. The good news for us is that we have a mediator. Amen? We have a mediator like Moses who God said, you did not disobey me. You didn't turn your back on me. The Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, our mediator, was perfect in every way, and yet God chose to lay our sins upon him. He became our substitute, the Holy One, taking unholy people and making them clean. The blameless Lamb of God being blamed for your sins and mine. He became the sin sacrifice, the sin offering, the substitute for sinners. He, the mediator, turned God's heart to us to say, Father, of course we know what they've done, but forgive them because they don't know what they've done. We know that we'll be with them, but they don't know the price of that. They don't know the cost of our love to be with them. The presence of God comes at a high cost, the blood of Christ. I mean, this is what grace is. God with us, present with his people. The good news is that God is not angry at the church because he poured out his anger on Christ on the cross. But we're still called to live holy lives. I mean, God hasn't changed. It's not like we say, well, now God doesn't get angry at sin or now people in the church don't sin. No, we still make idols Every day, as John Calvin said, we have idol factories inside of our hearts. They're just churning idols out every day. Images of God, thoughts of God that are untrue. Worshiping with our money and our time and our comfort, the things we love more than God. And yet he says, I haven't changed. I'm still a forgiving God, gracious to those whom I'll show grace and mercy to those whom I'll show mercy. I still forgive my people through a mediator. I love my people still. And I require them still to walk in holiness, to walk in fellowship. To walk in the Spirit, to be with God, means to to walk a life of obedience. Does it not? 
And in verse 16, Moses finds that this is a distinctive mark of the people of God. For how shall it be known, he says, that I found favor in your sight, I and your people, is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct? I and your people from every other nation on the earth? Think about this. How does the presence of God become a sign and make it known to the nations that this people, Israel, is God's people? Can they see God's presence among them? Can they see the invisible God? Can they see the spirit of God somehow dwelling in the midst of his people? Well, maybe in that day there was a cloud. Yes. But what about later, throughout the Israelites' history? Nobody could see the spirit of God. Can anybody look in your life and say, I know that she's a Christian because I see the spirit of God in her that makes her distinct and stand out? Can you even see the Spirit of God in your own life? No, He's invisible. You cannot see physically God's Spirit in you. But what is it that makes you distinct? I will be with you and I will give you my rest, God says. I want to focus on the, that theme of rest. Because before the golden calf thing happened in Exodus 31, God ends that section by saying, I promise you a Sabbath rest. Stop working, rest, and worship me. That's the pattern of life. Every week, throughout history. Then at the end of this section in Exodus 35, at the end of this whole section where God renews his love for the people, he ends that section with, guess what? Another promise of Sabbath rest and another command for them to find rest in him. What is the distinct sign of the people of Israel that's mentioned seven times in this section in Exodus? The Sabbath. He says Sabbath seven times. This is the very first thing he comes to after he says, okay, now we're going together. I'm going with you back to the promised land. Keep my Sabbath. He doesn't say, read your Bible, although that's very important. He doesn't say, listen to Christian radio. That's cool too, I guess. He doesn't even say, join a small group Bible study, although that's very important. What he says is, keep the Sabbath, because this is my promise to you that will make you distinct from the nations. You're going to be working hard six days a week, and you're going to stop one day and just trust me and enjoy my presence. And you're going to worship, fellowship with me. You know how weird that would be? If the whole church all across the world just enjoyed the Sabbath rest of God, enjoyed the spirit of the Sabbath, God's own spirit, which wants to dwell among us in a unique way, people would look at us like we're crazy. How are you going to get all your work done? You know? Oh, where are you going today? Oh, you, you can't keep that commitment because you have a, a higher commitment? Oh, that's interesting. Tell me about that. Hmm. An interesting sign. I will give you rest. How about those of us that work hard, performing, outperforming others? We want to make the grade. We want to make the mark. We want to get the promotion. Or some of us just trying to get a job in the first place. And we're working very hard to do that. God says, I see your hard work, but I don't want it to become your master. I want to be your Lord. I want you to have rest. I want you to know me. I want you to take a break and take some time with me. He says, I want to give you not a spirit of competition or performance. I want to give you a spirit of love so that you can stop what you're doing for yourself and your career and your agenda and look around you for a minute at the people around you who also have needs. Needy people, hurting people, hard people, people that have hurt you, people that are competing with you to get ahead of you. Stop and serve them in love. Have a heart that can work hard and then rest. Even when you watch other people seemingly move ahead of you or step over you, you can still love them and forgive them. You don't have to retaliate against them. You can rest 
and forgive them. Because I'm a gracious God, I'm gracious to whom I will be gracious, you be gracious. I'm a merciful God, you show mercy to people that are hurting around you. I'm gonna let all my goodness pass before you, Moses, as you hide in the cleft of that rock. Now I want you to go out and pass my goodness out liberally to others. That will be your glory. That will be the sign that you're my people. That I'm with you. I haven't gotten any amens yet, but I hope that at some point this sermon will turn and I'll start getting some amens from you guys. Is that okay? Just a little hint, okay? Here we go. Let's keep moving through here. The gospel gives us rest in the presence of God's spirit. It's about not just doing for God. Okay, the, the way people will know is if I do the right things, if I obey God and do the right things. It's about being, being God's child, resting assured that he loves you, being with him in fellowship. It's about being his children, being with him, never walking alone, never working alone in this life. And as Moses cried out in verse 18, shouldn't we cry out, show me your glory, God. Help me to to see how great you are so that I will make God-honoring decisions that will bless others and let others know that I am your child. Show me your glory is equivalent to Moses saying, show me your face. Because what does God say? Hey, I'm not going to show you my face, okay? You want to see my glory? Well, let me tell you this. I'm not going to show you my face because guess what? In verse 20, if anyone sees the face of God, he dies. But what about previously when Moses is out there in the tent, you know, camping out, outside the camp, and the, the cloud comes down and it says, he knew God face to face. We just read that. Yes, it does say that. But it doesn't literally mean he saw God's face. What it means is explained in Deuteronomy chapter 34 where he says, Moses, unlike any other man on the face of the earth, communicated with God face to face, and it says, and not in riddles. It means it was clear. God clearly spoke to him. I mean, there was a cloud, a visible cloud, but guess what? The cloud was hiding God's real face for Moses. God doesn't have a body. God doesn't really have a human face, but his blinding presence, his blinding glory, he thankfully hid it safely in the cloud so that Moses could still be with him. And so when he said, show me your glory, show me your face, what does God say? Okay, I'll tell you what I'll do. Can't actually see my face because it's like, a solar eclipse. You can't look at the sun without being blinded and your eyeballs fried. So what you're going to do is I'm going to show you when I put my hand over my true glory, where I show you just the backside of my glory or like the after effects of my glory. You know, like when the, the moon passes in front of the sun and you can see the dazzling light all around the rim of the sun, the blazing glory of the sun would blind you, but we get a glimpse of it in an eclipse. And God says, I will eclipse my glory for your sake because I love you and I want you to see me. But obviously I can't show you all my glory because you die. Now, he passes by, the face of God passes by Moses and he gets to see something like his back, you could say. The grace of God. You want to see my, my glory? I'll show you. He says, all my goodness will pass before you. And he keeps talking about grace. Over and over, the word favor appears in this chapter. It's literally the word grace. I found, you found grace in my eyes. I'm going to give you grace. I'll show grace to who I show grace to. What does the face of God look like for us? It's the grace of God. The face of God, Christian, is the grace of God to you. You want to see God's face? Well, look into his grace that he's given you. You know who wrote the, the hymn Amazing Grace, right? John Newton. You know, he said there's going to be three surprises in heaven. First surprise, that he's not going to see people in heaven that he thought would be there. Oh, I thought that so-and-so church person would be in heaven. Where are they? 
Surprise. Whoa. Okay, second surprise. There are people going to be in heaven that I never thought would be there. What about a guy on the street out there? He's here? Oh, God is a gracious God. The third and biggest surprise, he says, the biggest surprise of all is that he would say, I'm here. How did I get here? How did God love a sinner like me? Grace. Show me your face, God. Okay, I'll show you all my goodness, all my grace to a sinner like you. Look at how much I loved you. I sent Jesus for you. I gave you my own Holy Spirit so you could walk every day with me through the daily grind, through the trials, through the tears. And when Moses tasted that grace of God, when he saw the goodness and he heard the word of God coming day after day to sinners like him and the people of Israel, his face began to shine. At the end of chapter 34, in verses 29 through following, we read that when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two stone tablets of the law, Moses didn't realize, but his face was shining because he'd been talking with God. In verse 30, it says that all the people, including Aaron and the leaders, they were afraid to come near him. Moses didn't even know what was going on. Hey guys, why are you running away from me? What did I do? And he's just like glowing with this radiance. His skin is literally glowing physically. And then he began teaching the people the, the word that God spoke to them in verse 32. And when he finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Until the next time where he went back into God's presence, face to face, we could say, and kind of recharged the glow. So here he is, glowing, and then covering the veil after he speaks to a lot of the people. So when he walks around the camp, they don't see the glow. And, and the Bible tells us that the glow faded over time, and he'd have to go back into the tent and get the glory back on his face again. Think about this. They're the stone tablets, the law. There's Moses, the mediator, walking around the, uh, the camp, but this glory was simply like a borrowed glory, a reflected glory. You know what the Bible says about us, though? We have a better glory. Flip over to 2 Corinthians chapter 3 with me. 2 Corinthians is a New Testament book towards the end of the Bible. If you know where it is, great. Try to flip to it quickly. If you don't, then you can just listen. 2 Corinthians 3 talks about the better glory that we have in the new covenant. There was the old covenant written on stone tablets. Here's the law of God. The people can't seem to keep it. The glory seems to fade. They never got it right throughout the history of Israel. They kept worshiping idols and turning their backs on God in His glorious face. So enter the new covenant, a whole new level of grace and mercy for sinners like us. The true fulfillment of the glory that Moses glimpsed in that tent of meeting has been fulfilled in the new covenant where the glory wouldn't just pass by or the glory wouldn't just shine for a few minutes and then fade away. No, this glory is a, a permanent glory because we have a better mediator, not Moses, a sinner, who would go and meet with God and reflect his glory, but we have the mediator, Jesus Christ, who is the glory of God. Don't you remember what John chapter 1 says? Verse 14, the word, that's the eternal logos, the, the mind of God, the creator of the universe, this eternal spirit became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Or what is that word literally, guys? He did what? Tabernacled among us. The word pitched a tent among us, put on human flesh. And we have beheld in the only begotten son, the glory of the Father. The glory came down and took on human flesh. And it says also in John 1 that Moses brought us the law. The law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. A better mediator. A more gracious mediator. A, a better salvation secured for us. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says that Jesus 
is not just the reflection with a shining face. He is the radiance of God's glory. That's like saying he's not the reflection like the moon reflects the sun. He is the very light beams emanating from the Father. He is the glory of God because he is God. This man, Jesus, God, is always with us in the church. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, look at these phrases. I'm just going to skim through and show you phrases from verse 4. Such is the confidence we have through Christ toward God. This better glory gives us confidence before God. What does that mean? Before his face. He's always smiling upon us in Christ. Look at verse 5. Sufficiency. We have sufficiency in God. We have all that we need with the presence of God. Your presence is heaven to me. It's all I need. If I have you, I have everything. Everything else is just details. Look at verse 6. We have life in the Spirit. The Spirit of God gives us life, not a fading glory and death in sinners who get crushed under God's wrath. It's already been dealt with at the cross for those who will have it. Verse 8, there's more glory that we have in the new covenant, more glory than the glory of even Moses. Verse 9 says, exceeding glory. Verse 10, surpassing glory. Verse 11, permanent glory. Wow. We have all that? Yes, we have verse 12, a bold hope. Not, Daddy, are you here? Mommy, have you left me? No, we have always a bold hope that God is with us. Amen? Amen. Verse 18 says, So now, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. That doesn't mean freedom to do whatever you want. It doesn't even mean, I don't think, freedom to like dance around really high in church, although you can do that if you want to. You know, I think it means freedom from sin, freedom from shame, freedom from death, freedom from darkness. You have a boldness, you have a glory better than anything these Old Testament saints ever saw when a, a literal cloud came down and a man's face shone. You have the hope of glory in your hearts. You have Jesus Christ, the permanent Son of God, whoever reigns, and He lives in you, spiritually present with you always. He'll never leave you or forsake you. You don't ever have to wonder, does He love me or love me not? Is he going to go with me into the promised land or is he going to send me by myself or with, or with just people like me? Verse 18 says, where the spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom and with unveiled faces in unfading glory, we behold the glory of the Lord and we are being transformed into the same image. That means we're beginning to look like Jesus. Okay, so earlier in chapter three, Corinthians tells us that we have the ministry of righteousness. So we're beginning to look like Jesus because we're beginning to be more righteous. We're beginning to take on the character of Christ. And if so, it's from one degree to another. This doesn't happen instantly. You know, this doesn't happen where you can just like shine a big light and your face starts glowing and you're done. It doesn't happen in one moment where God says, okay, you were a sinner and now you're completely perfect and everyone will notice. It's not about being a better parent or a better student or a better worker or performing better than anybody else. That's not what the sign is that you're a Christian. It's going to be little by little, one degree of glory to the next. Little by little, you'll change. Little by little, you'll learn to rest in God's love and His presence. Little by little, people will start to say, huh, why don't you get stressed out about the things that stress me out? Or you're going through a really terrible time. How can you still hope in God? Little by little, your awareness of God's Spirit will increase. Little by little, your Assurance of your salvation will increase. Little by little, the empowering of the Holy Spirit will take you new places. And little by little, you'll bear more fruit and find more rest and be at more peace and have more love and have more joy than you've had previously. And that will continue to happen. Glory will build and grow and increase in your life. 
Because as 2 Corinthians 4 says, we don't only reflect the glory of God, but the glory dwells in us. These earthen vessels, these clay pots that we are, these bodies, we have a precious treasure inside of us. The spirit of the living God, Jesus Christ himself, spiritually, beautifully, gloriously in us. And so we can still cry the same thing that Moses cried. Show me your face, God. But we don't expect the same result. We don't expect glowing faces. We, we get a better result. He got a dose of glory. We get glory living in us, an unbreakable hope in our hearts. The power of the Spirit of God, the Sabbath Spirit, giving us rest. Do you remember the, the two guys, Bezalel and Aholiab, who built the tabernacle, that portable tent? God said, okay, I wanna, I'm going to give you these blueprints for the tabernacle, and then these two men are going to build the whole thing. And I'm going to have to give them spiritual power and wisdom to do it. So the Spirit of God came upon them for their work, for cutting cloth, for sewing it, for melting gold, for measuring wood and cutting it. These ordinary things, God said, I will empower you with my Spirit to make it beautiful. And that's His promise to all of us. Every day, whatever work you do, whatever you do with your hands and feet and minds, I will fill you with my spirit to do beautiful, wise, God-honoring work. It's not just about coming and singing songs and feeling good and having a glow on your face. That's not really the point of life. The point is go out there in the world and love me and serve me and find rest in me and be a witness to the world that my presence is better than anything. Whether it's in church on a Sunday morning with the people of God or out there on the streets, in the classrooms, in the workplaces, in your homes, that's where the work is done. That's where the Spirit really fills us for the task. So the question is, in closing, are you growing in confidence? Moving beyond the four-year-old stage, are you with me, God? I'm just really anxious right now about the start of classes or you know, the person I'm about to ask to you know, go on a date with me or about my uncertain future or about my financial situation or about whatever, I'm just feeling kind of stressed. Are you really with me on this, God? Are you really going to help me? Or are you starting to sense the indispensable, ever-increasing glory of God's Spirit in you for whatever task He's called you to? Can you see it? Can you taste it? Some of us act like God is just a general hunch somewhere up there in outer space or like in the atmosphere. I just got this hunch that if I do need Him, I could call Him like the 911 dispatcher and I'm pretty sure He'll be there for me. But most of the time, I don't really need him. Not really aware of him. Is God basically a rumor to you? Something you've heard about. You hear other people talking about him, but never experienced it yourself. Is God like a theological hangover to you? You know, I have this kind of foggy sense that I had this maybe one night stand or some religious experience with God or something spiritual, but I can't really put my finger on it. I don't really have that with me now. It's kind of faded, faded glory. Is living before God's face to you scary and you don't want to look God in the eyes? You'd rather just look at your phone and just be distracted with that and, and look and search for other things. Because to look in the face of God, to, to look in God's eyes, what will he see? What will you see? What will have to change? What does the presence of God mean to you, brothers and sisters? Maybe it means just looking at the ground, shuffling your feet, occasionally saying a prayer or a song if you happen to like it on Sundays, but the rest of the time you feel distant from God. You don't feel full of joy and connected to Him. What does God's presence look like for you right now? How do you need to grow in this increasing, ever-increasing, degree by degree, glory by glory, presence of God? I hope that more and more, little by little, God will become the center of your universe. 
I hope that you'll wake up in the morning and the reason you put one foot in front of the other, the reason you have fire in your bones is because God is with you and God is for you. So you can run with chariots like the prophet Elijah did. I hope that you'll have a real living relationship communicating with God face-to-face through his word and through his spirit better than what Moses had so that you can go and do risky things for God, that you can do hard things for God, that you can love hard people for God, that you can stay at the task he's called you to or try something new even though it might be frightening. I hope that we're not just into Jesus like a passing fad or like, yeah, I did a little Jesus this week, now I'm going to go do my own thing. I hope that you're more what the Bible says, in Christ. United to him, rooted and grounded in love. You're rooted, you're strong in him. He's not leaving you, you're not leaving him. But I also hope that you're into Jesus, that you're more than just theologically aware. Like, oh yeah, I got that, I I dotted that I, I crossed that T. I know what the books say. I have all the vocabulary down about the order of salvation and how it all fits together. I hope that it's more than that for you. I hope that Jesus is real to you, that you're really into him, that he's with you, in a real way, that you're more than just lukewarm or cold, God forbid. Like Revelation chapter 3 says, but that you're hot for Jesus, that you're zealous for him, passionate for his name. You know, it's a little embarrassing and kind of awkward to think about what the psalmist said about God, but he said, I'm like a deer, thirsty in the woods, panting for you, God, panting for you. Strange picture. That's how desperate he was for God. He says elsewhere, I open my mouth wide and pant for your commands. Feed me with your word, God. Give me your presence. I want to be with you always. When Jesus says to his church, I'm coming, my bride, get ready. Be watchful and wait for me. Do you say, I want that to be me? You say, I want to be ready. I want to prepare I'm going to wait for his return, walking in his spirit. Do you desperately want him to say that to you? I'm coming for you. I have you in mind. I know you. I love you. You found favor with me. Brothers and sisters, as we close in prayer, let's ask for God's empowering. That we would be able to say to anything that God requires of us, here I am, send me, because I know that you're with me. Amen? Let's stand as we pray. Father, we thank you so much for the word of God, which reminds us of better glory. We're getting a taste of it now, and it will increase and get better and better. And even now, the Bible says, we don't even see face to face. We only see dimly as through a mirror, in a cloudy mirror at that. But one day, we will see you face to face, and we will know you in a much deeper way, and we will become like you because we will see you as you are. Help us to get more of a taste of you, God. Help us to enjoy your presence. We can't have a glory that may be uh, called a spiritual high all the time where we walk around with a huge smile on our face and always feeling great about life, but we know, God, that whatever we are feeling, whatever we are going through, whatever we face tomorrow, you've called us to this one fact, this one reality that you are with us. You will not leave us. That you've done the most amazing act of grace for us, and you've shown us all your goodness when you gave us Christ, who died for us and now lives for us and now lives in us. And we ask all these things to be sealed in our hearts and made realities for each of us. In the name of Jesus, we ask. Amen.